0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
1: Two centuries ago, the world was fully renewable, but at the time, it was one billion peasants. So a hundred percent renewable world, I I, I know at least one option. We will go through a contraction of the economy because we will go through a maximum in the use of fossil fuels and renewables will compensate for a small fraction, but not for the whole.
0: Welcome to Radio EcoShock. We have a special treat for you this week. The world premiere of an English-language in-depth radio interview with Jean-Marc Jancovici. Jean Marc is well known in Europe and beyond as a consultant in both energy and climate change. He is an author of several books, the latest being Sleep Quiet Until 2100 and Other Misunderstandings About Climate and Energy. Jean Marc founded his company Carbon 4 and an NGO called The Shift Project. Jankovici is also a member of ASPO France, the Association for the Study of Peak Oil, or L'Association pour l'étude des peaks pétroliers et gaziers. I'm Alex Smith. Let's do it. A Best of Radio EcoShock Replay Did you know energy is free? And peak oil is not so dead. That comes from a French expert in technology, energy, and climate, Jean-Marc Jancovici. Jean-Marc co-founded Carbon4 Consultancy and The Shift Project. He advises, writes books, and lectures, mostly in French, but his ideas resonate with American writers like Richard Heinberg. From Paris, Jean-Marc Jancovici, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
1: Good morning or afternoon, I don't
0: know. It depends on where you are in the world. (laughs) You seem to say we cannot continue to live with fossil energy, but we can't continue to live without it either. What do you mean?
1: Actually, when you look at uh, what happened during the last two centuries, which, by the way, was most of American history, you realize that what people have done is that we shifted from energy converters that were mostly bodies and domesticated animals and firewood and wind, that is renewable energies, to energy converters made of metal, that is engines. And these energy converters allow to develop, actually they allow to turn each of us into an Ironman and to multiply the amount of transformation that we can each perform by a factor, uh, let's say 200 in the world, uh, 1,000 in the U.S. or 2,000 in the U.S., So what energy did, actually, is that it gave the food to machines, new food, food that came uh, below the ground when renewable energy comes from uh, on the ground or above the ground, food that came below the ground to feed new slaves uh, that don't think, (laughs) that don't complain, uh, that are perfectly moral, that are machines. And actually, Industrial Times is going from renewable energies to fossil fuels with a little extra, namely nuclear, but it's a small amount in the world. And that allowed to multiply by several hundreds the the ability to produce something, that is to transform matter, for each of us. That's basically what happened during the last two centuries, and wherever this happened... The society evolved like, namely, when you look at the way the day-to-day life changed uh, either in Europe or in the U.S. or in USSR before Russia and then Russia again, or in Japan or etc., there is a very simple rule, which is, uh, tell me how much energy you, you used, and I will tell you the way you live. Because, again, energy is machines and machines or energy is transforming, actually. It's in physics, it, it's, it's what quantifies transformation, energy. So there is something that that happened during these these, uh, historical times, uh, something very specific, never happened before. It's the ability to increase by several hundred the physical flows that surround us. But this relies basically on fossil fuels. And fossil fuels, they are well named, they are fossils. Or actually, they are, uh, they, they come from fossils. Fossil fuels, namely oil, gas and coal, are all remnants of ancient life. Uh, for coal, it's old ferns that lived 300 million years ago. And for oil and gas, it's basically algae and, and plankton, wherever it existed, that lived any time between 50 million years ago and 400 million years ago. This ancient life, that was marine life, part of it, well, actually all of it died, uh, part of it became sequestrated below the ground because of tectonics. Then it became uh, it, 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 got the heat, the inner heat from the earth that kind of distillated that organic matter and it turned it into oil and gas, uh, some of it becoming trapped by reservoirs. This is by a sense not renewable. Or actually, it's renewable if you can wait a hundred million years, what we don't do. But in the course of historical times, say a couple million years, it is not renewable. And there is a very simple math theorem that says that when you pick into a non-renewable stock, that is a stock that you cannot renew, it's given once and for all, the extraction from that stock is going to start at zero if you go far enough in the past, that's minus infinite, is going to end at zero if you go far enough in the future, that's plus infinite, and in between the two, it's going to pass through an absolute maximum, that's the peak. And actually, that that uh, theorem can be applied to anything which will never be renewed. So we can apply it to oil, we can apply it to gas, but we get also applied to nickel, iron ore, copper, aluminum, just name it. So whatever comes from a mine has to go through a peak. The only questions are actually, will we trigger the peak or will, will we suffer from the peak? Is it something that we are going to decide and manage or is it going something that we won't decide? It, it will just happen. Is it potentially far or not far from where we are? Is it at a very high level or not at a very high level from where we are? And actually, for a couple of resources, it's already behind us. So we might even ask ourselves the question, what are already the visible consequences of the fact that we are past or post peak? For so fossil fuels, now 80% of the energy supply that is the fleet of machines uh, that we use, are so efficient that they have replaced renewables, and we won't be able to replace them by renewables again, because that's we have precisely done the, re- the opposite uh, in the course of historical times. So the, the present standard of living just cannot be physically sustained without the help of fossil fuels uh, for physical reasons. Uh, again, they are Incredibly dense, incredibly powerful, uh, and that's why uh, they have turned each of us into Iron Man. The economic counterpart, so to say, of that uh, increased power is that the price of anything has gone down by, by tremendous amounts. If you take the U.S., for example, in 1930, food was 25% of what people earned. If you go to a supermarket today, the bill... Uh, will be uh, the the, the bill for food. I mean, what what you pay at the the cashier will be 5% of what you earn. But within that amount, what you pay is mostly building the supermarket on our Amazon, whatever, uh, building the packaging, uh, paying the truck that brought the food, etc. And the food itself is going to be 2% of what you earn. And among that 2%, you eat four to five times more meat than uh, 80 years ago. So the real price of food has been divided by several times. And that actually can apply to anything that we buy today because we have put machines to work instead of people.
0: I watched a YouTube video of your English language lecture in Paris delivered in January 2018. It's called, Can We Save Energy, Jobs, and Growth at the Same Time? You savaged the idea that we can live a similar life as today using only renewable energy, and that's odd to hear from a person who has helped advise governments on environmental policy. Why why can't we have the good life with renewables?
1: Well, there is something in your question which is not true. I don't advise governments because governments are not advised. They respond to external pressures. The first external pressure they respond to is elections. Then there is permanent ongoing pressures which come from what we call lobbies. But lobbies actually can come from both sides. I mean, uh, Environmental Progress is a lobby. Environmental Defense Fund is a lobby, as well as the Union of Chemists or whatever. So what governments do everywhere on, uh, in democracies uh, – it's not exactly true in, in, in other regimes – but in democracies, what they do is that they respond to uh, external pressures. Right now, the president that you have is not doing anything else or he's not, he's not doing anything different than what Obama did, only he's not responding to the same pressure or not serving the same people. The, the reason why I say this, again, is for physical reasons – it's not possible to keep the same flows. So when you look at, at something that uh, a productive activity, what is a productive activity? It's transforming resources into manufactured products. And that's true even for services. If you look at Netflix, for example, Netflix to exist needs cables, computers, electricity production. It needs trenches to bury the cables. Uh, it needs satellites uh, that must be launched by rockets, etc. All this is material. I mean, all this is material. All this requires mines. All this requires fossil fuels. All this requires metal industries. All this requires chemistry. So all this is material. And actually, when you look at the footprint of a laptop, for example, producing a laptop is emitting half a ton of CO2 into the air. So the, the idea that today we have services that don't require material inputs is totally false. Actually, when you plot the fraction of services into employment, versus energy consumption, you have uh, uh, something which is a positive correlation. Actually, the more energy you use per capita in a given country, and the more, the higher the the fraction of uh, services into employment. So what we are witnessing today is a civilization in which we have terribly increased the physical flows, including in services, and that can be done only with fossil fuels. And again, what we have done in the course of the last two centuries is is coming from renewables. Again, two centuries ago, the world was fully renewable. But at the time, it was one billion peasants. So a 100% renewable world, I know, I, I know at least one option <laughs> to achieve it is to go back to one billion peasants. With a life expectancy at birth, uh, that was something like 25 years or 30 years, let's say. But a 100% renewable world, in a world with 7 billion people, Living like even a minimum wage worker of a Western country that is just simply not possible. I mean, if you do the math uh, and look at the rule of three, you just can 't figure a way to achieve this. Now, once I said this, what is the practical conclusion? The practical conclusion is that it will decrease in a way or another. Uh, and actually, if you look at Europe. Japan, and even, to some extent, the U.S., all these countries have gone through an absolute maximum of their energy supply in 2006. In my view, it's what triggered what we call the subcrime crisis. Uh, the subcrime crisis is actually triggered by an energy crisis with a spike in oil prices in 2008, but it's not a matter of price, it's a matter of volume. Uh, so the volume of oil that came into these countries after 2006 decreased, and that triggered a contraction of the physical flows, that is, the economy, and that triggered an economic crisis. So anyway, we we, we can put it whatever we want. We will go through a contraction of the economy because we will go through a maximum in the use of fossil fuels, and renewables will compensate for a small fraction, but not for the whole. Same thing for nuclear. I advocate for nuclear, and I think that in this context, uh, calling non-nuclear is something that globally avoids risks and not globally creates risks but it's not going to avoid uh, the contraction of the system. It's going to soften it, if we call on nuclear. So And in my view, it's a good idea to soften the contraction.
0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. We're talking with French expert in energy and climate change, Jean-Marc Jancovici. So you have talked about energy as a background cause of the 2007-2008 financial crisis, and elsewhere in your work, you've offered the energy supply as a solution for many other things, including, you say, Brexit is a direct consequence that the energy supply has begun to decrease in Europe. And that seems counterintuitive to me because there really isn't an energy crisis in the Middle East right now, and but people are coming out of Syria and other countries. How do you explain that statement?
1: For the statement on Brexit, from 2006, the energy supply in Europe begins to decrease. Uh, when you look at the energy supply in Europe, so again, the food for the fleet of machines, but people that listen to us must understand that from now on, Every time they come across uh, the expression uh, energy consumption, they must replace it by fleet of machines. That, that's what they must keep in mind. And then plenty of things become crystal clear. So from 2006, the energy supply in Europe begins to decrease. Why? Because 80% is fossil fuels. And these fossil fuels uh, are the sum of coal. And coal is on decline regarding production in Europe since the early 80s and it 's not easy to import coal in massive quantities because the logistics of importing coal is a nightmare. Uh, you must have dedicated harbors, dedicated trains, dedicated boats, and it's not something that you that you can uh, increase uh, in the blink of an eye. so coal decreases then gas that is used uh, in Europe is sixty percent coming from the North Sea, and the North Sea passes through its peak in two thousand and five and Again, importing gas is not something that you do into the blink of an eye because you have to build pipes, and building pipes takes a long, long time. You probably know it in the U.S. with the Keystone XL pipeline. And GNL uh, that you can bring by boat is something that accounts for 10% of the world gas consumption. So it's not something which changes by and large figures. So gas gas production in Europe declines, and so gas consumption in Europe declines, and oil imports, uh, oil production in Europe uh, began to decline in 2000, uh, in the North Sea, and oil imports in Europe began to decline in 2006, because from 2006 to 2012 or 2011, say, there is a long plateau on the world oil production, even if you include common And so the ability to import of the historical importers, including US, decreases because China, namely, and India, take more and more of the existing oil. So what happens is that oil plus gas plus coal are all on the decline, and so the the energy supply in Europe declines. So the ability to operate a large number of machines declines. That means that the GDP declines because euros or dollars, whatever, or pounds, they are just the economic way to count a transformation that the physicist can, can count in joules Or British thermal units. So, what happens after 2006 is that the industrial and the industrial production and the GDP in Europe begins to decline. But Europe is a big market. In this big market, Romanians earn 300 euros per month. People in Hungary and people in Bulgaria and people in Poland, all these people earn far below 1,000 euros. So, say 1,000 dollars per month. Whereas in UK or in France. People earn much more than that. So what happens if you have a free and open market uh, where you have no GDP growth overall, but still the ability to go wherever you want? Well, it happens that Poles move to London, uh, and it happens that British industries close their factories in Great Britain and invest in Romania, as French industries do, uh, as uh, everybody else does. To to name it with, uh, uh I would say, words used by physicists, you have a global amount that doesn't change in which you have huge differences of potential that soften, that get level. Uh, so what happens is that money flows from the West to the East. And then you ask the Britons whether they are happy with it, and they say no. And exactly the same way, you ask the Italians whether they are happy with it, and they say no. Exactly the same way, the, the, the Germans begin to say a little no. Uh, and in France, we have also a populist party, which is growing. And I believe that in the next elections, uh, that will be the European elections next year, we'll have a huge no also coming from the French population. And that's due to the fact that Europe is a single market that thought its future only in a context of growth. Nothing, nothing is foreseen uh, in the case there is no growth. So what happens, and actually that's, that's something which is valid for many democracies, the, a future with no growth is something that so many people consider as unthinkable, including all these economists that get the so-called Nobel Prize in economy. <laughs> they believe this is still unthinkable that nobody thinks on what to do if it happens for real. And actually, that's exactly what we experienced in Europe. The U.S. experienced exactly the same thing. Uh, I'm not sure that many people that will listen to us know that, the, that to date, the absolute maximum uh, for the U.S. energy supply was 2005. Today, the U.S. is still below. Uh, and actually, the GDP went up again. But when you look at the structure of what went up, You have the inflation of assets that accounts for a large fraction of what happened. And the the fact that you have full employment is also due to the fact that the number of people that got out of the labor market during the crisis never came back to the market. So today, we are still in a situation uh, in which we haven't recovered, so to say, from the 2006 and 2007 uh, situation. And if you look at the chronological order uh, of what happened, Uh, in 2006, maximum in the OECD zone of the energy supply. At the end of 2006, you see a deceleration in the GDP growth and you see the real estate prices that begin to decline in the U.S. and that triggered all the rest. So it's not the fact that people in the finance industry have, have done nonsense, which is true, by the way, but (laughs) it's not the fact, it's not sufficient to explain, uh, what happened. Now for Syria and other countries alike, we have witnessed a combination of an energy crisis and climate change. The energy crisis that I've just mentioned deprives Egypt and Tunisia of tourists. There are no tourists in Syria, so there's something else that that, that plays a major role. Tourism in these countries accounts for 10 to 15 percent of the GDP. And these countries are otherwise major importers of food because they have a domestic population growth, and the domestic production of food cannot follow uh, because of droughts, basically. I mean, there, there, it's not possible to grow enough food, and actually droughts are increasing in the Mediterranean basin because of climate change. So these countries have to import plenty of food. Now, in 2010, we're in the aftermath of the energy crisis, and therefore the economic crisis that I've just mentioned, so tourists are gone. These people need to import food, but Tough luck. That year, food prices skyrocket for two reasons that add to each other. The first one is that oil prices rise again and you have a, a, a correlation between all commodities on financial markets. So basically when the price of oil goes up, the price of anything else goes up. And it's not because of inflation. It's because of the, of the, of the way asset managers, uh, act. And the second thing is that that year, you have a huge heat wave with a huge forest and a wood forest, and a huge contraction on the cereal production in Russia, and Russia that year says that it won't export cereals. So that's another reason for which, overnight uh, in July, I remember, uh, the prices of cereal went went up thirty percent. And these countries, Tunisia and Egypt, again are massive importers. Tunisia roughly imports half of what the population eats, and Egypt is the largest wheat importer in the world, and it imports about a fourth of the cereal it uses, uh, and then oil, uh, whatever, meat, and, and plenty of other things. So uh, what happens then is that prices of food go up, and they go up over what, uh, let's say, the 30 or 40 percent of the population that are at the lower end of the bracket can afford to buy food, and so you have food rights. And as you probably know, if you have read history, uh, food riots is a very good way to get rid of existing powers. It's also what happened in France in in, uh, 1789. Just a year before, uh, there was a huge hunger uh, that killed uh, almost a million people, and that triggered uh, the French Revolution. So that's what happened in these two countries. In Syria... Uh, we have something close. The population of Syria and the food production of Syria grow alike until 2006. And then from 2006, under probably the, the increasing droughts in the Mediterranean basin and under the rise of the price of oil that prevents people from using too much machinery in the field and too much water pumps, the food production begins to decrease And Syria basically is not connected to the outside markets, cannot import anything because basically it doesn't export (laughs) anything. So also uh, you have all these people that move to the cities and it adds on top of a situation that was already highly unstable. So, of course, it's not the only reasons that triggered what happened, but it directly contributed energy and climate change uh, to what happened in Syria. And my belief is that all these are the early signals of what is going to, to increase around the world because of energy contraction and climate change.
0: You know, Jean-Marc, the energy peak oil movement and the climate change movement grew up as separate and then sort of discovered each other later. And there was quite a bit of discussion as though there were a race of which was going to endanger our civilization first, climate change or peak oil. And I think after the fracking explosion in the United States, that... Fell somewhat quiet, and people have been ignoring the limitations on energy and, and thinking that we have enough fuel to power our way directly into catastrophic climate change. Where do you place your bets on which is the greater threat coming soonest?
1: I place my bets on the fact that nobody will understand <laughs> for both of these factors that is happening. So, actually, when you look at what is happening Today in Europe, which is obviously the place that I know the best, nobody talks of the fact that we have contraction of the energy supply. Nobody does. Nobody understands that it's something that we haven't chosen. Because if it were something that we had chosen, it wouldn't happen uh, the same year everywhere. Because politicians are not the same everywhere. Uh, Domestic measures are not the same everywhere. So if it were something that was a consequence of domestic policies, wouldn't happen in 2006 in greece and in spain and in italy and in france and in, U- and in the uk and in the us i mean it, 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 it doesn't fit so, but I, I do not see in europe a single government saying oh we have understood energy is machines if machines work less the gdp goes down that exists nowhere i'm not sure that it exists in the us and i'm not sure that it existed uh, during the mandate of obama correct me if i'm wrong so my bet is that governments don't understand this. And I have not seen very often, if at all, in the head of a political executive in Europe, the fact that climate change is already putting refugees on the road by large numbers. So a little more, so to say. And my bet is actually, I'm going to, to, to answer your question with another question. Suppose you put a pair of scissors on, your, on one of your fingers, Okay, with one blade up and one blade down. And you increase the pressure. And you ask yourself the question, which blade is going to do, is going to do you more harm? I think your answer will be, actually, there is no, I mean, your question has no sense. I mean, it's, it's the fact that they press one against the other, which is going to harm me. It's exactly the same thing with climate change and energy. Actually, energy is the ability to change things into the world. So with infinite energy, you can meet, you can address any adverse effect without limits, because you can correct anything without limits. So what is going to harm us is the conjunction of limited energy and increasing problems. That's what is going to, to, to harm us. So it's the conjunction of the fact that climate change is going to increase and energy is going to not increase much than decrease, which is going to harm us. Let me take an example. Over two degrees, we will, trigger, we will trigger the dismantling of the West Antarctic ice sheet. It's an ice sheet that relies on mountains, so there is a slope towards the ocean. And if the conditions become favorable, in quotes, so to say, that, that part of the ice cap is going to become unstable if we are on a path over two degrees. And once it has started to melt and dislocate, uh, it's, there is no going back because you have positive feedbacks everywhere when that ice cap ends into the ocean, fully ends into the ocean, it's going to take a couple of centuries. But when it fully ends into the ocean, it's six meters extra for the ocean. We have the same process uh, with Greenland. Actually, Greenland has begun to melt. And uh, also, because of the positive feedbacks, uh, it's going to continue melting for the centuries and millennia to come. And that's also three to six meters extra uh, for the world ocean. So 6 plus 6 plus the fact that the ocean is going to rise because warm water occupies more volume than cold water. So the fact that water dilates when you heat it is going to add to the ocean uh, level increase. So just wait if we go over 2 degrees and one day Netherlands will be under the water. A significant fraction of Florida a significant fraction of Louisiana, a significant fraction of New York, etc. All this will be under the water, including uh, Bangkok and Shanghai. Well, you understand that uh, to displace all these cities in the blink of an eye without fossil fuels is something that you just can't do. So it's the conjunction of the two. Which, Because that, that in five centuries, there will be no fossil fuels, uh, or, or very little fossil fuels. Uh, and today, it's fossil fuels that allow to manufacture cement in large quantities, iron in large quantities, have trucks that bring all this uh, in large amounts, uh, cranes that allow to erect all this uh, quickly, etc., etc. Uh, Notre Dame, uh, that was built a 1,000 years ago, it took a century to build it. Now a tower in Manhattan takes six months or a year. So it, all, this is because of energy. So, what is going to hurt us to, to end the, 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 this long answer to your short question, uh, is the conjunction of the fact that having less energy is something that means that we'll have less ways to master our destiny, and at the same time, we will confront to a growing climate change. And something that I should add, because it's something that uh, many people probably don't have in hand, in their minds, the amount of time that you must wait for a surplus of CO two to evacuate from the atmosphere is over ten thousand years. So there is nothing such as a reset button for climate change. The only thing that we are sure of is that the day consequences will become unbearable or perceived as unbearable, it will then become worse later on. It's the only certainty we have. So. The, well, actually, it's a certainty we have. So, it's, again, it's the conjunction of the two uh, that is going to harm us, exactly as if you put two, the two blades of scissors on top and on bottom of your finger. It's the pressure on both blades at the same time which is going to hurt you.
0: You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, EcoShock.org. This is Radio Shop with your host Alex Smith. We return to our discussion with a French expert in energy and climate change from Paris. It is Jean-Marc Jenkovici. So, Jean-Marc, your latest book is Dormez tranquille jusqu'à l'en vinsant et autrement entendu sur le climat et l'énergie. That is loosely translated as sleep quiet until 2100 and other misunderstandings about climate and energy. Can you give us a short introduction in English to that work? What's it about?
1: It's about the fact that uh, in the energy and climate change debate, uh, and actually I didn't answer part of your, a small part of your question, which is indeed the world of, of energy and the world of climate change. Were two worlds that didn't talk to each other for a very simple reason: it's that people in the that that the visible or the major NGOs into environmental issues were globally saying regarding the largest actors in the energy sector, "You are our enemies," and if somebody is your enemy, you don't try to understand what he or she does. So people that wanted to explain both what climate change is, and what energy is, actually, we still are, uh, there still are very few of us. I'm, for example, a member of ASPO in France, uh, the Association for the Study of Peak Oil. Most people that come from the oil sector consider that people that are in the climate change sector are people that do not address the main problem. And most people that work in the climate change sector just don't know what an energy system is so it's 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 true that there are not that many people. It happens that my personal history made me coming across both of these topics, but it's something which which is a kind of luck i mean it's, it's uh, it wasn't made on purpose uh now to come back to the book uh the book is uh based on the fact that because of the simplifications uh made by the press, people that debate on energy or on climate change issues most of the time debate on misunderstandings the title of the book, Sleep Well Until 2100, actually was given because in the climate change issue, something that you most probably have heard all the time is, if we do nothing, then we will have uh, three degrees or four degrees or five degrees, or whatever, in 2100. And when you hear that a 100 times, most people that otherwise are not specialists, and uh, their major issues are, uh, am I going to get out of, the, of, of my job early enough to pick up the, the kids at school, <laughs> uh, have, I, have I forgotten or not to buy bread this morning, and et cetera. When they hear this, and they are not specialists, basically, they develop a reflex of understanding that until the 31st of December of 2099, nothing will happen. Basically, if we risk something for 2100, there is an implicit in this sentence, which is that before that date, we risk nothing. So the title of the book was there to recall that, of course, things will happen before 2100, and it's not because people that perform uh, simulations in in, in climate change, uh, in in the climate change debate, using numerical models. Perform their simulations until 2100. That nothing is going to happen before. It's a little less true now. I mean, the debate has has progressed a little because things are becoming uh, true. I mean, things you're not going to to learn that uh, California has witnessed its largest or some of its largest uh, wood fires in history five series in history last summer. So it, something is becoming real. So now people understand that 2100 was only a conventional date in the numerical models uh, used by physicists. But a couple of years years ago, I mean, my book was written in 2010. It was not true. Among the other misunderstandings uh, that I develop uh, or that I try to address in this book, there is the fact that I developed before that the 2000 crisis is not before anything else, a financial crisis. It's before anything else, an energy crisis. Actually, a double energy crisis. The first trigger was pulled in 1973, might recall it, the first oil shock, because that was a sudden change in oil production that before that date was growing by 8-9% per year in the world. And just after that, it fell to plus 1% in the world, on average, for the 30 years that followed. So that sudden change in the energy supply, well, in the oil supply, triggered a sudden change in the energy supply, and actually it triggered uh, the stop of the growth of the energy supply per capita, that is the machine fleet per capita, in all OECD countries. Therefore, to, to be able... To continue to spend money at the growing rate of three to four percent per year because the system that were installed in all the western states was to spend money and namely public spendings uh, with a growth rate of three to four percent per year you couldn't sustain this bef- unless you began to borrow and so external debt begin to exist and grow uh but Exist in some countries. I mean, France didn't have any external debt in '73. It began to grow uh, from that date, and then in 2005, a second thing happened: oil growth in the world stopped, and the oil supply in OECD countries began to decrease. And that hit hard because of the of the contraction of the GDP that followed. A stockpile of debt. Uh, that began to grow until the first oil shock. So what happened uh, in 2008 is a double energy crisis, 73, then 2005. And it is not primarily a financial crisis that we will fix with financial fixes, uh, and then uh, the world growth can go on uh, as it did before. It, it, it is not going to become true. And actually, uh, we have now all the early warnings of a new crisis coming along uh, because the shale oil boom that you just mentioned in one of the previous questions is coming to a halt uh, right now. You probably know that in the U.S. there is a bubble on the debt of shale oil uh, frackers, All uh, these people that don't earn positive cash flow. Uh, so they have a little problem reimbursing their debt. Uh, and you have a kind of Ponzi pyramid uh, that, that is being built uh, on this sector of the economy. So right now, there is another huge misunderstanding still. It's that energy is the sector in the economy and not the blood of the economy. Uh, So that's another thing that I addressed in my book. Another one, I have just discussed it, it's the fact that the riots uh, that happened uh, in Tunisia and Egypt uh, in 2010 were riots for democracy. Uh, It was not. uh, It was riots for food because of uh, energy and and climate change issues, among other things. I'm also uh, discussing the Brexit and the fact that in France, our populist party is also our own domestic Trump, I could say, is <laughs> also gaining audience. Uh, all this is a consequence of the fact that the European GDP came to a halt for energy issues, et cetera. So all, all, all this that I'm developing into this book uh, is is the fact that if you take your energy glasses to look at what's happening... Plenty of things become logical and connected, but also very—I uh, would, I would say—it uh, it makes you very anxious. But then you, because then you understand that we are embarked on a course that we won't halt in a week. I mean, something which is governed by very long, long-term trends, and, and it's going to be very difficult to reverse the trend uh, with, with, I would say, short-term measures.
0: Yes, Jean-Marc, what do you make, uh, you mentioned the sort of Trump in France developing, uh, what do you make of the withdrawal of major polluting countries from climate change action as the United States even withdrew from the Paris Accord and uh, the rightist leader probably going to be elected in Brazil is claiming he will do the same. How do you see that playing into this picture we've just been talking about?
1: The first answer that I'm going to give you is a historical one. Between 1965 and 2017, the CO2 content of a uh, dollar of GDP in Europe was divided by three. In the US, that as you know, didn't sign uh, the Kyoto Protocol, that pulled off from uh, the Paris Agreement, by how much do you believe that CO2 emissions per dollar of GDP were divided in the same period? The answer is, by three. (laughs) (laughs) So, my opinion is that what these political leaders do is of basically no importance. What is important is what people that really, or I'm going to be more precise, it is important, but it's not the main driver of what is happening. What is the main driver of what is happening is what large corporations will do, is what citizens will do, is what local governments will do, is what trade unions will do. I mean, elected presidents are one among many of the actors that have to and that can play a role. You see, for example, in the U.S., the fact that the CO2 emissions coming from electricity production decreased over the last 10 or 15 years has nothing to do with Obama and actually nothing to do with Trump. And when Trump says that he's going to revive coal, I mean, he can just as well tweet on something else. He's of no, he has no influence on what is happening because what is happening today in the U.S. is that producing electricity with shale gas costs less than producing electricity with coal. That's why coal is going down, and gas is going up, and the CO2 emissions coming from electricity production are going down. It has nothing to do with Obama and nothing to do with Trump. So the, the importance of having a political leader saying, I want to be in or I don't want to be in, is something which is not the only, uh, I would say, uh, reason why things happen. Let me give you uh, ask you a question. Suppose that tomorrow morning, both Europe and Japan and the U.S. have major economic actors that say we all have a vested interest in the fact that the Amazon forest remains in good shape. So we are ready to pay people to keep the Amazon forest in good shape because if we don't do this, the world climate goes hayward and we don't want it. And we are going to establish a flow of money going to people that are going to do something Uh, I would say sound, with the Amazon forest, instead of cutting it uh, to grow uh, soybeans. Do you think that the Brazilian president is still going to be a climate skeptic? I doubt it. So basically what these people do is that they respond to external pressures, just as I said before. This guy actually has no conviction by himself. He just doesn't care. He has voters. He has lobbyists. And that's what drives his action. If tomorrow morning he can understand that he puts his country into a better shape, caring of the issue, that not caring of the issue, he will do it. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at EcoShock.org
0: I'm Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock with our guest Jean-Marc Jancovici. You know I've been thinking about how sad it is in a way that your work is walled away from us uh, uh, most of it uh, by language differences and and again there's so much good work in German that is closed off to me but eventually and maybe not too far away machines will accurately translate your book to English and in fact <laughs> the barriers to world languages will fall now would that start a new intellectual revolution or could it be dangerous as well if everybody can talk to everybody anywhere?
1: ah, That's a good question. Uh, I think it, it does actually. I'm going to, to give you two answers. I think that as a whole, the world IT and telecommunication system is an emission enabler. It is an emission enabler in two ways. Uh, one way, and that's going to be translated into English, it happens that the, the NGO that I have created uh, seven years ago, the SHIFT Project, uh, that basically advocates going to a low-carbon economy because uh, it's a good idea to do so in the long term, basically it's, it's, the, it's the economic optimum. In a way, we, we have to preserve assets that are indispensable uh, to preserve a productive system, even though in the productive system we never take these natural assets into account, Without them, we just cannot produce. I mean, if tomorrow morning uh, you put somebody into uh, the interstellar vacuum with no resource, even though he has trained and skilled workers and a very nice banker, he won't produce anything. So if you don't have resources, you don't produce. So preserving resources is something that you need in order to preserve a productive system. So in the long run, uh, actually, advocating for a low-carbon economy is advocating for something that it can be sustained in the productive system. Otherwise, we won't sustain anything. So going back to what I said, so the the SHIP project just released in French, but it's currently being translated. So if you're interested, I will, I will, it will be my pleasure to send it to you uh, once it's translated. A work that we have performed on the carbon footprint of the world IT and computer, uh, well, let's say uh, information technology system. The, that's the combination of personal computers, servers, networks, cables, uh, telecommunication lines, satellites, etc. and the electricity that runs all this. Well, if you pile up all this, so including production of the device that we use to run the global telecommunication and IT system, it amounts today to 4% of the world emissions, which is globally about the emissions of the world truck fleet. So this and it's growing by 10% per year. So the first way to answer your question on IT, if it was, if I understood correctly that it was a question on IT, is that notwithstanding uh, what Apple and Google say, (laughs) today the global IT system is an emission enabler because it is a sector that leads to emissions because of the upstream mines, because of the upstream chemical industries, because of the upstream metal industry that is required to manufacture all the device, and because of the coal power plants, 40% of the electricity in the world, and the gas power plants, 25% of the electricity in the world, that are required to operate all this, even though some people say that they operate on 100% renewable electricity, which is not even true, but it's okay. Now, the second thing for which it is uh, an emission enabler, I'm going to demonstrate it by, by the absurd. Suppose that tomorrow morning, all the IT system vanishes, All the computers vanish overnight. All the telecommunication lines vanish overnight, etc. What happens? We have no money anymore. Because money today is basically something written in a computer, uh, as you probably know. Banknotes, uh, at least in France, uh, I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but I suppose it's close. Uh, Banknotes and coins, it's one on 30 of the global monetary mass. So you're not going to run the economy only with this. You have no communication system. So all large organizations cannot run anymore. You have no water pumps. So all the cities are deprived of potable water. Uh, they are deprived uh, of what comes out in the toilets. Not name it. <laughs> it's evacuated uh, elsewhere. You're deprived of cops because uh, cops cannot operate without communication system, etc., etc. So basically you have a collapse. And if you have a collapse... Of course, CO2 emissions will contract. So this little demonstration by the absurd shows in a very simple way that today, the global IT system in the world sustains huge flows and therefore a huge use of energy. So the the idea, uh, so and your question on uh, whether it was a good or a bad thing that everybody can talk to everybody else, is actually something that cannot exist if you do not have a global IT system. Okay, if you do not have that, it just cannot exist. So the good thing right now is that the global IT system uh, will uh, enable me to talk to a fraction of your audience uh, that might regret it. <laughs> but uh, for sure, it is something, the global IT system, uh, which pushes the emissions up instead of pushing them down. It's un- uncomfortable to hear, uh, but unfortunately, it's a fact.
0: Yes, although, and we don't really have time to get into the other side of my question, which is, perhaps it's better that we are all isolated in separate uh language or tribal streams, and once we really are able to talk to each other, perhaps that would allow… Uh, some central power to offer propaganda to all of us in a single language. I mean, that the, the, we don't have time to go there. But I would like to ask you, you said in your Paris lecture of January 2018, because the energy at large doesn't grow, anything that someone wins is something someone else will lose. It sounds very Darwinian. Your vision makes us almost a secondary agency, not only to machines— but to energy itself. And I got this picture that billions of us have almost evolved like insects to become fossil fuel parasites. Is that too dark or is that true? Wait,
1: wait, 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 what, do you, what do you mean? I'm not sure I got the question. Well,
0: we're, you have just explained all throughout this talk how totally dependent we are on fossil fuels at this point. Yes. And, you know, without them, uh, I would say billions of people would die. Yeah, Probably. So we can say, in a way, we have changed from whatever natural animal we were to now become very complex fossil fuel parasites. We have to live off this other food.
1: Ah, okay, sorry, I didn't. Uh, parasites, yeah. In a way, yes. We we are, are, are fossil fuels, symbiotic animals, yes. <laughs> like like the mushrooms that depend on the tree.
0: Exactly. All right. Now, what are you working on next?
1: Just a couple of things. Uh, As you said uh, at at the beginning, uh, my work uh, is to be a consultant. And actually, I'm the founder of a company uh, that now amounts to a modest 50 people. And we try to confront economic activities to the energy and climate constraints, basically. I hope that before I die, a, civic, a significant fraction of the budget uh, today devoted to uh, McKinsey, uh, Bain and Company, uh, the Boston Consulting Group, uh, and Harvard Economists gets devoted to my company because uh, we try to put physical limits. Uh, into the business that will happen anyway, and it's probably helpful for people. So that's my tremendous professional ambition. I, say, I, I should say, uh, with the ship project, uh, my ambition is to try to convince people that have the time to listen to complicated to, to complex sorry uh, explanations, just like the people that listen to us right now, that we have something which is which deserves uh, much greater attention because all the rest is correlated to that or linked not correlated linked to that and that if you take going low carbon as as i would say uh the root of a political program it's something which is holistic and you can plug all the rest on it with something which is very easy to explain and very easy to advocate so that i would say is my uh associative uh ambition now, regarding books, unfortunately, nights be, have become too short, so my editor, uh, is trying, has been trying to convince me for the last four years uh, to write a new one. <laughs> but I don't know when I will be able to say yes to him. But if, if I do so, I'm not sure it's going to be very, very good for my clients, but if I do so, I think that the next one I would like to do econ greenwashing. Because one of the things that dispels me is that, uh, the complacent behavior uh, of most of the media today that accept the greenwashing of the companies that otherwise uh, finance the advertisement budget, uh, so finance the media, and they accept that to, I would say, relay the, the light put on solutions that treat 1% of the problem and a full silence on the rest. And that's something that you can witness everywhere. I mean, all companies, they, they, they come with a, a corporate speech that says, we're addressing the issue. Look at what we're doing. We're doing this and that. Uh, and actually, when you do the math, they're addressing 1% to, 2%, to 10% uh, of the issue. Uh, I've recently learned that the SP 500 companies in the US are going to spend $1,000, $1,000 billion on buybacks this year. And the CEOs of all these companies, right hand on their heart, uh, are going to say that they really want to save the planet and they're not going to spend 1% of this amount on uh, serious actions to understand and address the issue. So probably if I do a next book, uh, it's going to be uh, on, on this huge, I would say, uh, greenwashing and, and, and hypocrisy that we are witnessing today.
0: All these voices that whisper in our ears sleep well until 2100, my darlings. So, <laughs> from Paris, we've been speaking with the French author and consultant on energy and climate, Jean-Marc Jancovici. I will put links to his website and other materials in my weekly show blog, published at ecoshock.org. Jean-Marc, it has been really stimulating talking with you. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Radio EcoShock. Millions of us in the west of North America, Scandinavia, and Russia went through a summer of fear and smoke in 2018 as record forest fires filled the air. Was that a burst of carbon to the atmosphere? And what does it mean? Next week, I'll ask a widely known expert, Professor John C. Lynn from the Land-Atmosphere Interactions Research Group at the University of Utah. Then we're off to England for another deep science interview with Dr. Edward Hanna from the University of Lincoln. There is something going on over Greenland that can steer hurricanes into coastal cities in the United States and Canada. Oh yeah, and summer pressure in Greenland can rain out the UK and northern Europe and change the sea level around the world. Be sure and tune in to Radio EcoShock next week. Sometimes a phrase can appear out of the fog. This week it is an old English saying, whistling past the graveyard. There are two ways to interpret this phrase. Wiktionary.org gives two definitions, and consider these as reactions to the horrors of climate change as well. To attempt to stay cheerful in a dire situation, to proceed with the task, ignoring an upcoming hazard, hoping for a good outcome, or to enter a situation with little or no understanding of the possible consequences. This all came to me reading tweets about Donald Trump. A tweeter named Puesto Loco said Robert Mueller should tell the voting public if current candidates are suspected of crimes or even treason. If not, says Puesto, Mueller whistles past the future graves. Isn't that what we do as we drive around and shop? As we vote for climate deniers because we like their other policies. As we whistle along through these fossil-powered illusions, the future graves may be millions on the other side of the world, or for our descendants, or maybe ourselves. Hey, it's a Halloween horror show here on Radio EcoShock. Check out my weekly blog, published every Wednesday at EcoShock.org. This is Screamin' Jay Hawkins, Whistling Past the Graveyard.
1: On the wings of a magpie, across a hooligan night, Busted up a chaperone way out by the moon. Cooked up a mess of mulligan and got into a fight Whistling past the clay stepping on a crack I'm a mean mother hubba, pop a one-eyed jack you probably seen me sleeping out by the railroad tracks Ask the prince of darkness about the smoke from the stack Sometimes I kill a jackal and suck out all the blood feel myself a station wagon, driving into the mine, a whistling past the graveyard, stepping on a crack.
0: I'm a mean mother-hubber, papa, one-eyed jack. I know you've seen my headlight. Like-